I hope you picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes as you were coming in. Uh, we continue uh, our study of the uh, book of Hebrews, and today uh, we continue the message I began last Sunday uh, entitled, uh, How to Finish uh, the Race Well. Our focal passage being Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 12 through 13. But as we did last Sunday, let's begin uh, with a, a brief review of the, the preceding verses, Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. And, and the reason it is so important to do so in this regard is that there's a vital connection between verses 1 through 11 and verses 12 through 17. So look, look at these five lessons that we have already learned in our study from Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. First lesson, when encountering adversity and persecution, which we all do, we are not to grow weary and lose heart, but instead we are admonished to run with endurance the Christian race, remaining faithful to Christ all the way across the finish line. And it's important to remember in the historical context of the book, what was threatening to cause the Hebrew believers to grow weary and to lose heart was persecution. They were experiencing intense persecution, uh, living in a culture that was hostile towards Christianity. And it had just beat them down, just like adversity beats us down. Also, keep in mind as we review, what does it mean to win the Christian race. Christian race, of course, is simply an allegory of living the Christian life. Well, how do we define victory? How do we define winning? And we said it involves three things. First, it means becoming more like Jesus Christ. As I live my Christian life, as I run the race, I'm progressively advancing in Christ-likeness. I'm becoming more and more like Jesus. Second, it means as I become like Jesus... Others are able to see Jesus in me, and they're drawn to Christ to join in the race with me. And then third, to remain faithful to Jesus all the way across the finish line, no matter what we encounter. Look at the second lesson we learned in those first 11 verses. We are to run the race fixing our eyes on Jesus. Uh, considering how he dealt with hostility and suffering and follow his lead. We're to take our eyes off of our circumstances, put them on Jesus, and as we study Jesus and how he responded and reacted to life's adversities, we're to follow his lead. The third lesson, a very important lesson, adversity. When we experience pain in our lives, it is not a sign of God's hatred. It is a sign of God's love. Uh, that passage says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. It talks about the fact that every child he receives, he what? Scourges. Uh, and then we, we see there that we're to remain faithful. Uh, I'm sorry. Every hardship is God's opportunity, what? To mature his child. That's the simple truth. Every hardship is God's opportunity to mature his child. And remember we said, everything that happens in your life, you can boil it down to it's happening for one of three reasons for a believer. Either God is using the adversity, using the difficulty, the trial, to bring you back to God 
after a time of maybe drifting and wandering from Him. Or second, He's using the adversity to keep you close to Him. To open your eyes to just how dependent you are on God. To make you desperate for God and determined to lay hold of God and to stay close to Him. Or third, He's using the adversity to take you even closer to God. To build deeper intimacy with God. So no matter what happens, it's happening for one of those three reasons if you are a believer. And then number four, the fourth lesson, we are to submit to suffering as God's disciplinary training. And this is very important as we move into verses 12 through 13. We're to submit, surrender to suffering as God's disciplinary training to make us spiritually fit so we can run the race with endurance. Uh, That passage says, He disciplines us for our, what's it say? Good. In order that we might share His holiness. And then the fifth lesson Although initially painful, and it is painful, disciplinary training is ultimately priceless. Why? Because it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, which empowers us to cross the finish line uh, as winners. Now, how to finish the race well. Let's read again the verses, our focal verses for today, verses 12 through 17. So I hope you have your Bibles already open, and uh, you follow along as I Uh, read these verses. Verse 12, therefore, in light of that truth, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it. With tears. Look again at the introduction in your notes as we did last week. Notice the word therefore at the beginning of verse 12. The truth stated in verses 12 through 17 is an exhortation to live up to the truth in the preceding verses of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 17, consist of three commands we must obey and two warnings we must heed if we are to benefit from God's disciplinary training and finish the race well. The crucial question you have to ask yourself is simply this. Do I really believe the truth that is taught in Hebrews 12? Do I really believe that God uses pain, that God uses suffering, hardship, difficulty as a disciplinary tool, as disciplinary training for my good, that I might be able to share His holiness, that I might become spiritually fit to run the race so that I can finish the race a winner and receive eternal rewards. Well, if you do believe that, then there are three commands we must obey. There are two warnings we must heed. And today we'll finish 
looking, uh, looking at the three commands, the first of which we examined last Sunday, and then next Sunday we're going to examine the two warnings. So finishing well what we must do, these three commands, look at the first one, which we uh, examined carefully last Sunday, so we'll review. Accept the fact the race will be hard. Just accept, resign yourself to the fact, the reality, the race will be hard. Resolve not to give up. Keep running straight ahead with your eyes on the prize. And the prize, of course, is Jesus. And realize you cannot make it across the finish line alone. We need one another. We desperately need one another. So accept the fact the race will be hard, resolve not to give up, keep running straight ahead with your eyes on the prize, and realize you cannot make it across the finish line alone. We need one another. Look at verses 12 and 13 again. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The writer is painting a picture of total discouragement, using the analogy of an exhausted runner. The inescapable reality is the Christian life is hard. It's like running a grueling marathon, and nothing can make it easy. Even if you possessed all the Bible knowledge in the world, it would not make running the race any easier. It would not take the pain out of adversity. It would not take the sorrow out of grief or the hurt out of wounds, out of uh, the wounds. Uh, let me just give you a simple illustration that hopefully will, will clarify what, I, what I've been trying to communicate. You know, at one time in my life, I was a football player many, 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 many years ago. At that time, I was a student of the game. I knew the playbook inside and out. I could tell you the role of every player on every play, on both sides of the ball. I knew every drill. I knew every exercise. I knew all the disciplines I needed to apply to my life to get in peak condition to play the game. But all that knowledge I possessed did not make the brutal two-a-day conditioning practices in the blazing human heat of August fun. It did not. All that knowledge that I possessed did not take away the excruciating pain from getting hit by a 300-pound lineman when I was only 155 pounds at that time. All that knowledge I possessed did not keep my bell from getting rung by getting a vicious hit by a defensive back. All that knowledge that I possessed did not keep me from getting sucker punched and, yes, even bitten after being tackled at the bottom of a pileup. And all that knowledge I possessed did not keep me from having to fight through exhaustion, to fight through cramps and aches at the end of a hard-fought game. Yes, you have to know the game to play the game. My simple point is, knowing the game is not the same as playing the game. As we saw last week, there will be heartbreak hills that you will encounter as you run your race. And when you hit those heartbreak hills, 
There will be times you'll just hit the wall. And you'll think, I cannot run another step. I'm just at the end of my ability to endure this any longer. And at those times, you must be resolved not to give up. To continue to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Now, Jesus does not run the race for you, but he's running with you. And he's leading you. And he also gives you the strength that you need. He's placed within you the Holy Spirit. Not to take away your weakness, but in the midst of your weakness to provide a strength so that you can continue to run. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord, those who trust in the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. Now going back, Hebrews 12, verses 12 and 13. One of the main truths, if not the primary truth we emphasized last Sunday, is the fact that this exhortation is addressed to the church's family. We are to strengthen one another because the race is too hard to make it to the finish line alone. We need one another. So how do we strengthen those who are faltering? How do we help get them back Up and running in the race, look at Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 and 4 there in your notes. It says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. How? Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. We encourage those struggling in the race by reminding them victory is ahead. A better day is coming because Jesus is coming. We remind them that all the pains of the race one day will be swallowed up in the ecstasy and the euphoria of crossing the finish line to enter the eternal realms and all the glories of heaven. Therefore, keep running. Keep running. It is worth it. And another way we encourage those who are struggling is by providing an example worth following. Look at Proverbs chapter 4, verses 25 through 27. It says, look straight ahead and fix your eyes on what lies before you. Of course, what lies before us? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Stay on the safe path. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. I love the way the message puts it. Leave evil in the dust. Notice it says, mark out a straight path. Now compare that to Hebrews 12, 13, where it says, make straight paths for your feet. We discovered last Sunday the word that's translated paths in our English Bible. In the Greek text, that word literally referred in Bible times to the tracks that would be left by a cart or chariot, which later travelers would follow. As you run the Christian race, 
you're leaving tracks behind you that will either lead or mislead others. And the only way to leave a straight track for others to follow behind you is by keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus and following Him. This leaves an easier path for the struggling Christian to follow, which allows them to be renewed and healed. This is why at the end of Hebrews 12, 13, we read, Make straight paths for your feet. Why? So that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. See, often a Christian struggling just needs an example that will inspire them. So will you be that example? Will you be that example for your children, for your grandchildren, for your marriage partner, for your church family, for your community, wherever God has placed you? And we concluded last Sunday by saying the best way to run the race is what? Not to concentrate on your weakness, but what? To strengthen other Christians in theirs. So look, look now at the second command. At the second command in our passage on how to finish the race well. We are commanded to chase after peace. We're to chase after peace. Look at Hebrews 12, that first phrase in verse 14. Pursue peace with all men. In both the Old and New Testaments, peace is a relational term. The Old Testament word for peace, shalom, conveys a sense of wholeness and harmony. A person at peace is a person who is at harmony with God and with others. And so when it says, pursue peace with all men, please notice that word peace, or, or pursue, the word pursue, is a very, very strong word in the Greek text. Uh, the word conveys the idea of fixing your eyes on a goal and then chasing after it with all intensity, making every effort to catch it and to apprehend it, to make it your own. Uh, the word is used often in the New Testament, and, in, and most of the time it is used in the context of pursuing interpersonal harmony with one another. I'll just give you a few examples. These are not in your sermon notes, but Romans 14.9. It says, let us pursue... Chase after with all intensity the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 says, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And 1 Peter 3, 11, Seek peace and pursue it. When the writer of Hebrews says to pursue peace with all men, this goes right back to verses 12 and 13 and the fact that the Christian race is too hard to run it alone. That we need one another. We are a team and we cannot afford to be at odds with one another. United we stand, divided we fall. This is why there is so much emphasis in the New Testament on maintaining peace, on maintaining unity with one another. Again, just several examples, not in your sermon notes, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. 
Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. And then Ephesians chapter 4, precious passage, verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now look in your notes at Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 18, which provides us some very practical instructions on how to pursue peace, on how to maintain harmony in the body of Christ with one another. Notice it says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Hebrews 12, pursue peace with all men. This says, if possible, so far as it depends on be at peace with all men. Now notice, I am never to seek revenge on anyone. But always to pr- pursue what? Peace with everyone. And God's word leaves no room for a single exception. I'll repeat that one more time. I am never to seek revenge on anyone. Never to get back. Never to try to get even. Never to hurt them because of hurting me. But always to pursue peace with everyone. And God's word leaves no room for a single exception. Now a little bit further down in verse 21 it says, Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with, do you know what it says? Good. Don't be overcome with evil, but you overcome evil with good. And, and this is right along the lines of what Jesus taught. When he says, hey, if somebody curses you, Don't curse back. He says, you bless them. He says, if somebody hates you, don't hate back. Do good to them. He says, if you have an enemy who's out to destroy you, well, then you invest in your enemy. You meet a need that they have. You have someone who's abusing you, taking advantage of you, get on your knees and pray for them. The Word of God is clear here. It just gives concrete instructions that are impossible to misunderstand or misinterpret, that are very, very clear. Now, the key in doing all of this is found in the phrase, in verse 17, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Circle that word respect. That is a very bad translation of the Greek word. And it really doesn't convey uh, the full thought of what's being said. The actual Greek word is the word pronoio. And the word literally means to think before you act. That's what the word literally means. When he says respect what is right in the sight of all men, he, it is, he's saying think before you act what is right in the sight of all men. 
or the verse could be translated, before you react to what was done to you, think. Think what would look right in the sight of men. In other words, what would be the right reaction in this situation to put Jesus on display in the sight of all men? That's it in a nutshell. That's what you and I are called to do as believers in very difficult, hard, hurtful, interpersonal relationships. We're to, before we are to react, before we respond, lash back, we're to stop, we're to think. We're to think before we act, and we're to think. What would be the right reaction in this situation that would put Jesus on display in the sight of all men? You know, this is very similar to the admonition that we already looked at in Hebrews 12, 3, where it says, For consider Him, consider Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners and endured it. The word consider in the Greek text literally means to examine something carefully in order to reach a conclusion. We actually get our word logarithm from this particular Greek word. But the word literally means to examine something carefully until you reach a conclusion, in order to reach a conclusion. So we are to examine carefully what? We're to examine Jesus carefully. Again, it's back to what? Fixing your eyes on Jesus. I don't fix my eyes on the circumstances, on the hurt that was wrong that was done to me. I don't put my eyes on the person who inflicted the pain. I fix my eyes on Jesus. I consider Him. I examine Him carefully. How did Jesus respond to hostility? And I'm to follow His example. And that's all it's saying in Romans 12. Think before you act. Before you respond, think. What would be the right reaction in this situation to put Jesus on display, to put in in the sight of all men? See, it says in 1 Peter 2.21, For God called you to do good. Again, not to be overcome by evil and respond back in like manner, but to overcome evil with good. Even, it says, if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in His steps. We're given some very good advice. This, this verse is not in your uh, sermon notes, but you might want to write it down. We're, we're given some good advice in Proverbs 29, 11. It reads, uh, let me take, give it to you how it reads in one of the more contemporary translations. It says, A stupid man gives free rein to his anger. A wise man waits and lets it cool. A stupid man gives free rein to his anger. A wise man waits and lets it cool. Notice, cool it is a biblical term. It is. God is saying when you get angry, and Chris will love this. You may have seen her hat. Where on the hat it just says chill. And that was God, that's what God's saying. Just cool it. Just chill for a time. See, you cannot put your foot in your mouth if you keep it shut. Count to ten. That's biblical. Or based on biblical print. Or as high as you have to. And as you do, consider what Jesus would do in your situation. Think before you act. And then ask God to give you the strength 
to respond in a manner that will put Jesus on display in the sight of all those that are watching. This isn't in your sermon notes. I'll give this to you as an extra. You'll just find a place on the side column. And I want to use that word think. Think before you act. Think before you act. And we'll, we'll just use that as an acrostic. And for each letter, I just want to give you a verse. And I would really admonish you, encourage you to really focus on this through the week. Uh, maybe write the verses out, uh, commit these verses to memory, and then it's practice that makes perfect. As you go through life, as you go through situations, you may not catch yourself initially, and you say, oh God, blew it again, but then, then come back to this and follow this little formula. Here it is, the, the acrostic think. Let me give it to you. The, the, the letter T, and I'll give you what each letter represents, and in the form of a question that you can ask yourself. Think before you act. And then the verse. The letter T, ask yourself, before you say anything, before you respond, say, what I'm about to say, is it truthful? Is it truthful? Ephesians 4.25 says, laying aside falsehood, speak what? Speak truth. I got a kick out of one guy who said, uh, when him and his wife get in an argument, he says, my wife, she never gets hysterical. She just gets historical. And he says, the only problem is she rewrites history. Uh, she embellishes. She puts a little spin on things. And, and, and that's what we're talking about. You know, before you just fly off the cuff, stop and think. What I'm about to say, is it really truthful? I'm not putting a spin on it. I'm not embellishing for my advantage. But is it truthful? The letter H is it helpful? Is it helpful? Or is it going to harm? I need to ask myself this. What I'm about to say, what I'm about to do in this situation, is it going to be helpful or is it going to harm the relationship? Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not use harmful words. Ephesians 4.29 is the passage. Do not use harmful words, but only helpful words. The kind that builds up and provide what is needed so that, you, uh, so that what you say will do good to those who hear it. Notice, overcome evil with what good? And here it says, so that, you, so that what you say will do good to those who hear it. So I need to ask myself, what I'm about to say, what I'm about to do, is this just going to erect a wall between me and this person? Or is this going to be the first step to building a bridge between me and this person? To bring reconciliation. I mean, is what I'm about to say, what I'm about to do, is it going to move towards uniting me with it or dividing? The letter I, the letter I, is it inspirational? You know, we've talked about the importance of providing an example worth following. Providing an example for others that would inspire them. Well, I need to ask, what I'm about to say, what I'm about to do, I mean, is it inspirational? Uh, will it is, it, is this going to build up or tear down again? Romans 15.2. Romans 15.2. Let's please the other fellow, not ourselves, and do what is, notice his emphasis on good. Do what is good. Overcome evil with good. Do what is good and thus build him up in the Lord. 
So the T, is it truthful? Ephesians 4.25. The letter H, is it helpful? Or is it going to harm? Ephesians 4.29. The letter I, is it inspirational? Romans 15.2. And then the letter N, is it necessary? What I'm about to say or do, is it really necessary? Is it really going to help the problem or is it just going to make things worse right now? Or uh, you might need to ask yourself, okay, it may be necessary, but is the timing right right now? I mean, I think we would all admit one of the big problems we have in interpersonal relationships is we may be saying the right thing, but the timing's not exactly right. You don't say it in the heat of the moment. Let things cool. Let things chill. But is it necessary? I love Proverbs 17, 14. Starting a quarrel is like breaking a dam. So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. So is it necessary? And then the letter K, the the last letter, ask, is it kind? What I'm about to do, what I'm about to say, is it kind? Colossians, uh, Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be kindly. This is what gets me in trouble, I'll be honest, in interpersonal relationships. It's not so much what I say, it's how I say it. And it's so important that God wants to teach us not only what we say is the right, but how we say it. That we say it in a kind fashion, where it conveys to the other person, we really do care about you. I'm really putting your interest even before my own interest. And even more important, I'm putting the interest of God's kingdom above all things. And my desire to reconcile and be right with you and in this particular situation. So, think before you react. And then as God gives you that direction, He'll give you the strength to live it out. Look at the third command. We are to obey if we're to finish the race well. The third command, we are to be in hot pursuit of holiness. To be in hot pursuit of holiness. Look at Hebrews 12, the latter part of verse 14. It says, pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Sanctification, of course, refers to holiness. And you know what holiness is. It's being conformed to the character of Christ. It's developing Christ values, um, Christ attitudes, uh, Christ perspective on life, Christ character, Christ behavior and conduct. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter 1 verses 14 through 16, we read, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, is holy, be holy yourselves, also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then Ephesians 4, listen to Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, fixing your eyes on Jesus, on His Word, thinking before you react, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, what does it mean 
to be in hot pursuit of holiness. We've already said it. In the context of Hebrews 12, let's not go outside of Hebrews 12, but in the context of Hebrews 12, it means keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus in order to follow in His footsteps. It means to consider how, again, He dealt with hostility, how He dealt with suffering and adversity, and then be committed to follow His example, to follow in His footsteps. It also means submitting to adversity as God's tool in your life to enable you to share His holiness. Look again, it's there in your notes at Hebrews 12, 10 and 11. He disciplines us, and again, that's not necessarily in the negative sense. That can involve corrective discipline. But remember, we, we saw that that discipline in Hebrews 12 is defined in a much broader sense. As a coach would discipline his athletes. Or as a drill instructor would discipline his troops, getting them ready for the battle. Yes, correction is involved, but much more than correction, instruction. Making them spiritually fit, teaching them drills that they'll need. So that they'll be ready and prepared for the game or for the battle or whatever uh, in front of them. It says, He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. It says, All discipline for the moment is what? Sorrowful. It's not pleasant. It's painful. It's hard. It's tough. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now, beloved, listen very, very carefully just for the next minute or two. Because the truth that I'm about to share is so important in the context of of Hebrews 12. If you are God's child, He loves you with an unfailing love. And because He loves you, He has put you under His disciplinary training for your good that you might share His holiness and walk in peace and righteousness. Now, how does God do this? He uses both external circumstances to put pressure on us, as well as the internal presence of the Holy Spirit to break us, to break you of self-centeredness, to break you of sinful tendencies in order to produce in you the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In other words, the the, the main truth that you need to see in verses 1 through 11 of, of, of of Hebrews 12 is that God is steady at work in you to produce peace and holiness. That's what He's up to. That's what He's doing in your life. Each and every day He's steady at work doing that. Therefore... When God commands you in in verse 14 to pursue peace and holiness, what is God doing? He's simply saying, would you please pursue what I'm already working to accomplish in your life? Will you please pursue what I'm already working to accomplish in your life? Don't resist me. Don't run from me in discouragement, but run to me. Cooperate with me. Folks, this is the same principle that we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, where we are commanded to what? Work hard, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with reverence and fear. Why? Because God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Notice, He says God is working in you. 
He's the power at work in you. He's working his peace, his holiness, his, his righteousness in you. Therefore, you work hard to pursue that, to obey him, to follow him. See, it's all dependent upon God's work in us. Because he is at work in us, we can respond and cooperate. Now, before we leave verse 14 and conclude the message, notice it also says, without which, what? No one will see the Lord. Now, that's a little challenging to uh, interpret, but I believe this is referring to our witness to unbelievers. In other words, the only way the lost will ever see the Lord is through the lives of God's people. As we live in peace with one another, as we walk in holiness, reflecting His character. Remember, what does it mean to run and win the race? It means becoming more like Jesus in order to win others to Christ, that they might join the race with us. So I believe what he's saying is, pursue peace, pursue holiness, because without you living in peace, without you walking in holiness, men will not see me. And I love men, I love the world, that's why I sent my son, and now you are my instrument of blessing to make my son known to a lost world. And again, as I've shared many times from, from this pulpit, before there can be a credible verbalization of the gospel, there must be, what, a very clear visualization of the gospel. And that's why Jesus said, for example, they will know you are my disciples by what? By your love for one another. We demonstrate the authenticity of God as we live out His truth in our lives. So as you run your Christian race, let me ask you as we close, are you chasing peace? Are you in the hot pursuit of holiness? Can you honestly say, as it says in Romans 12, 18, that you've done everything possible to be at peace with all men? In other words, right now, is there anything between you and another person that you have not sought to make right? Now, folks, hear me now. You're not responsible for how the other person responds. But you are responsible before God to reach out and to do whatever can be done to bring harmony, to build a bridge instead of keeping a wall up. They may not respond. God doesn't hold you responsible for that. But He will hold you responsible for your actions. And are you in the hot pursuit of holiness? Are you fixing your eyes on Jesus? Are you considering Him as you go through life's circumstances and situations, reflecting on how He would have responded, and then drawing from the power of the Holy Spirit within you that His strength would be perfected as you commit to take those steps of obedience, as difficult as they may be? So to sum up the three commands... On how to finish the race well, we must realize the race is too hard to run alone. We need one another, and we must pursue the peace and holiness God is already at work to accomplish in us so that others might see Jesus in us and join the race with us. Father, thank you, thank you for providing all that we need for godliness and for life, for righteousness. Thank you, you are the power at work in us. 
That's why these admonitions, these commands can be given to us. We are not left without the resources needed to walk in them. So, Lord, as we have seen, give us the grace to submit to your disciplinary training, to cooperate with you, and to take those steps of obedience, as difficult as they may be initially, and especially emotionally difficult, knowing that although initially sorrowful, although initially difficult, although initially painful, in the end, it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness, for it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.